Hello and welcome to the RBC Ross Trevor Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community, to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoyed this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Amen. Well, thank you, Kira Lee and team. Hey, uh, just to mention too that if you've got kids and uh, then there are some kids' packs that have been prepared, so if you want to use those uh, during this time or just take them home as well and use them with uh, your kids, then you can do that. They're just out in the foyer. Uh, and you can grab them now if you'd like to. Hey, uh, it's really good to be here and to open up uh, God's Word uh, today. Today we continue in our series called A Gift for uh, All, and today we'll be looking at uh, the second gift uh, that was brought uh, from the Magi and presented to Jesus. And the idea of this series is to help us to see in what way uh, have the, these gifts that were presented to Jesus, how do they help us to know more of who he is and what he is like? And so that's kind of where we'll be journeying uh, today. But I was uh, 16 when I got my driver's licence. Okay, this is, back, this is back in the day now. You've just got to go through a whole lot more rigmarole. Uh, I basically just got mine out of a Wheaties packet and it was done. But I remember when I was, uh, when I was learning to drive, I was pretty cautious I don't know if you remember when you were learning to drive, but I was pretty cautious, I was pretty attentive. I remember I would get in the car, and, uh, and in the car I would, uh, I would look around and I'd make sure that I've got everything kind of uh, uh, there, that I've my seatbelt's on, that my seat's kind of uh, you know, set up right, I'd make sure there's fuel in the car. I would uh, I'd make sure, look at my surrounds and make sure everything was kind of in place and, and ready uh, to go. I'd check my mirrors. Uh, I would turn on the ignition and I'd work out which way do I need to turn when I pull out of the garage. Am I going left or right? And so I'd go through this whole thinking uh, process. Then when I was approaching roundabouts, uh, I'd have this internal dialogue. Okay, Dan, so slow down, uh, foot, on the, foot on the clutch, change gears, indicate, turn, and, uh, and then uh, indic- uh, accelerate kind of you come around the corner. So all of this was going on. Do you know what? 25 years later, I don't drive like that anymore. <laughs> How about you? I don't drive like that uh, anymore. Why uh, I don't drive like that anymore? All that thinking and doing now kind of happens instinctively. Uh, why? Because I've, come, I've become familiar with the car and I've become familiar with driving. But here's the thing. There is a danger, isn't there, with becoming too familiar with things. Uh, there is a danger with becoming overly familiar. Uh, familiar sounds like a good thing, right? And in some cases, uh, familiarity is a good thing. However, familiarity has a way of doing bad stuff to us. Have you noticed that? Uh, there's been times now, and recently, where I've just jumped out of the, I've jumped in the car, and I've just pulled out of our driveway, and bang, I've hit the wheelie bins. They were just jutting out too far from the edge of the edge of our garage. Even one time, for some reason, it must have been the garbos. It was the wheelie bin was like in the middle of the driveway, and I've just gone bang into it. Why? Familiarity. I had failed to look around and actually observe what was going on around me. Now, of course, things could have been a whole lot worse. 
But familiarity has a way of doing bad things to us. You see, when we become too familiar with things, we quit noticing them. Have you experienced that? We quit noticing things. We begin to take things for granted. We tend to quit investigating things. And when we are overly familiar with someone or something, we can easily forget to celebrate them, celebrate the things that they bring, celebrate what they once did. And here's the thing, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, when it comes to walking with Jesus, familiarity is a real danger. It's a real problem for us. John Lennox, who's a Christian apologist and mathematician, uh, some of you may uh, have come across him and read some of his work, but he says this, we have a tendency to take something of absolute value and turn it into or make it into something of relative value. How true? How true? And this is the danger of familiarity with Jesus. There's been times in my relationship where I've felt too familiar with Jesus. Things have just become automatic. Uh, and the relationship at times has felt like it's a bit more commonplace and ordinary. And my guess is, this is your struggle too. My, my guess is that this isn't just me. I imagine you have found yourself at times too in seasons where you've become too familiar with Jesus where he's been maybe commonplace and ordinary. When we become too familiar with Jesus, what happens? We quit seeking him. We quit seeking him like we once did. We stop celebrating his immense worth. We become a little indifferent, no longer surprised by him. You could say it this way, we lose the wonder of our relationship with Jesus. I wonder, have you become too familiar with him? Are you too familiar with Jesus? Go ahead and open your Bibles. Uh, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 2 uh, today. So Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be picking up this, uh, this story uh, today. Now, just one of the things I've been praying about as we prepared for today, and I'm believing for uh, as we unpack uh, this story and this second gift, uh, is that God's Spirit will move in us today and would awaken us and would kind of shake us out of any potential indifference or any familiarity that there may be kind of lingering there when it comes to our walk with Jesus and that we would be able to see Him afresh and recognise Him again as our greatest treasure. Okay, so that's kind of what I've been praying for. And so I, I do uh, believe that as we unpack this today, that the Spirit of God is going to be at work and He's going to be doing something in your heart and your life. And so I pray that you'd lean into this, that you'd lean into and be amazed again and afresh at who Jesus is, what He is like, and recapture some of the wonder that uh, may have been there at, uh, at first. Matthew 2, 1 to 2. I'm going to pick it up in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to kind of jump to verse uh, 9. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And just jumping down to verse 9, They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. Next slide. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures 
and presenting with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, as we saw uh, and heard last week, these magi or these wise men are surrounded by legend. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of that. Mike unpacked it all very well uh, last week. But one thing, though, I think we can confidently say is that these uh, magi were truth seekers. They were seeking truth. They were also people uh, of wisdom and uh, piety and valued and were committed to wisdom and holiness. They were most likely skilled in philosophy, astrology, medicine and natural science. But importantly, they had a clue and a hope that something significant was happening. You see, back in the day, when something significant happened in the heavens, it was a sense that something significant was happening on earth. And so on the strength of a star and a hope in their heart, they set out believing that a new king was born and that this new king would be one who would usher in a new kingdom of love and peace and justice and righteousness. And so they set out traveling months, even years, to worship him and to present him with gifts that are worthy of who he is. And one of those gifts was the gift of frankincense. Now, unlike gold, frankincense is probably a little less known uh, to us. But frankincense is, uh, as the name suggests, it is an incense, and is an incense of the highest quality. It's kind of regarded as like the incense of incense. Now, if you are into essential oils uh, today, you'll know that it is still regarded as a very uh, popular incense and costs a lot of uh, money. But it has a very sweet and pleasant smell. Uh, it is produced by extracting gum resin from what's called the Boswellia tree. It's then that resin is then dried, it is then crushed, and it's then burnt, and the smell uh, comes uh, after it's being burnt. According to the Old Testament, frankincense was an incense that was specifically used by priests and for priests. It played a special role in the worship of God. Uh, it was placed on the table of showbread and it burned every Sabbath by the priest. It was also the base incense and the base substance of a special holy incense that was burned day and night on the altar of incense. And it was used for priests when they would be ordained and were anointed. And so this gift of frankincense, presented to Jesus by the Magi, prophetically declares that Jesus would not only fulfill the role of king, but also the role of priest. And that he would be a mediator and a priest for all. So what was the role of the priest? If we're going to understand what the role Jesus played, it's important that we have some understanding of the role of a priest. Well, priests were appointed by God to firstly be teachers of the law, they were, there to be, uh, they were there to rule the nation. They were there to be represent God before the people. And significantly, they were there to offer sacrifices for the atonement of people's sin. Because here's the deal. You and I, we are all contributors to the evil that is in the world. We are all contributors. The fault line of sin doesn't just run down the person next to you. The fault line of sin runs down the middle of all of us. And so they were there to offer sacrifices for the atonement of people's sin and the evil that we brought into the world. And so the most significant day uh, for the high priest was Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur was the day of atonement. 
And once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies in both the tabernacle and the temple was the place where God was. It's where His presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat was, it was where God dwelt. It was a dwelling place of God. And the high priest would stand before God and make atonement for himself, for his family, for the other priests and for the whole nation of Israel. And to do this, the high priest would put on some special garments, prepare the animals for sacrifice, burn the frankincense, and then he would take the blood of a bull for, and sacrifice that for his, own, uh, for his own sin. Then he would take the blood of a goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people. He would bring the blood into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it in an act of purification onto the mercy seat and would pray for the sins of the people. The priest would then take a second goat and put his hands on the head of the goat, transferring the sins of the people onto that goat. That goat would then be released into the wilderness, called the scapegoat, and never to be returned, signifying that the, the sins have been removed, people's sins have been atoned for, and God has taken away the sins as far as the east is from the west. That's a quick snapshot of the Day of Atonement in Yom Kippur. But it was an elaborate, I think you'll see, extravagant and ritualistic system that was required to be, formed, to be performed each year, ensuring the sins of God's people were atoned for. And it was the high priest who was central, key and core to that ceremony. Now this side of the life of Jesus, this side of the Magi, we can just see how fitting this gift of frankincense was for Jesus. You know, I doubt though that the Magi could have fully comprehended just how appropriate this gift was for him. Have a look what the reader of Hebrews says. Hebrews 5.8 says this, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And as Timothy, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy, For there is one God... One mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, or who ransoms the idea, who gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for all people. You see, through Jesus' life, atoning sacrifice, and life again, Jesus became a perfect high priest and mediator for all people, covering the debt that we owe to God for our contribution to the evil in the world and for making a way for humanity to come and be welcomed and enjoy and experience the very presence of God. So how was it? How was it that this child, how was it that Jesus became our perfect high priest? How was it that he became our source of eternal salvation? Well, it was because this child was no ordinary child. This child was God with us. This child was God in flesh. And as fully God and fully human, he is the perfect one to bring heaven and earth together. He's the perfect priest and sacrifice that all the other priests and sacrifices were pointing towards. So he is the perfect one to make us one with God. 
And Hebrews 2, 14 to 17 spells this out clearly for us. Have a look. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Saviour took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death, by embracing death, taking it into himself. He destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. Goes on and says, that's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then, when he came before God as high priest to get rid of the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. You see, church, the mighty God of heaven came to earth in a body like yours and mine in order to save people like you and me. God becoming one of us in order to save all of us is the good news of great joy. It's the unique and the central meaning of Christmas. You see, every other religion says that the way to salvation is through one's performance and perfection. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to climb. Here's what you need to say. Here's the level that you need to achieve. Our culture does the same thing too, doesn't it? We live in a culture that is swimming in a perfection and performance orientation. We are obsessed with performance, image, achieving, accomplishing, getting things done. It's everywhere. For many of us, we can't be happy unless we're performing, unless we're achieving, unless we're accomplishing. It's a tough way and a tiring way to live. The trouble is, though, that we bring this, we bring this approach into our faith. We bring it into our life with Jesus. And so subtly, our discipleship, our service, our giving, our obedience, our worship, our morality, it gets turned into a a performance and a perfection orientation. It becomes a performance and a perfection-orientated Christianity where we begin to think that we can save ourselves, that we can begin to make amends for our own sin through our own perfection or through our own performance. So how do we know if we're caught up in this performance trap? How do we know if we're caught up in this perfectionism trap? Well, one is that you think that there's something within you that makes you deserving of God's grace. Do you think that? Do you think there's something within you that makes you deserving of God's grace? Well, the second, the second thing is, too, that you think there's something that you've done that makes you deserving of God's grace. He said, but Christianity and Christmas says something different to religion and to our culture. It says something that is both more threatening to religion and to our culture and something more beautiful. It says that none of us are okay. It says that none of us are perfect enough and none of our performances are good enough. We are all in need of salvation. We are all in need of saving. And here's the thing, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We're all in need of a saviour. We're all in need of a mediator. We're all in need of a high priest. It says that, the gospel says that we are all in need of the gift that Jesus brings. It says that you can stop trying. You can stop trying to pursue perfection Because God has come to us. Perfection has come to us. Salvation has found us. You see, if we're all okay, if we did not need any help, 
if we could save ourselves just by being perfect or pursuing performance, then there'd be no need for God to come to us. But Christmas exists because we are not okay. We are not perfect. We cannot save ourselves. And so Christmas and Christianity says to our culture, you can step off the performance treadmill and into the grace of God because of what Jesus has done as your high priest on the cross. No more wondering if we've been and if we've performed enough. No more wondering if we've done enough. No more wondering if we've accomplished enough. No more wondering if we've achieved enough. No more wondering if we are enough. You see, Hebrews 10, 11 to 12 makes this plain as day for us. Have a look at this. It says this, Every priest goes to work at the altar each day, offers the same old sacrifices year in, year out, and never makes a dent in the sin problem. As a priest, though, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. Then he sat down right beside God and waited for his enemies to cave in. It was the perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. Thanks be to God, hey, that through our perfect high priest, Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice, you and I, as imperfect as we are, can know salvation and life with God. We can experience the presence of God, not by anything you've done, not by anything I've done, but by his accomplishment, by his achievement, by his perfection alone. And that is good news. That is good news of great joy for us in a world of religion and in a world and a culture that just says to us, you need to keep performing and outperforming. It's already been done. It's amazing news. Is this capturing your heart? Is this actually reminding you again of the, of the wonder? The wonder of who Jesus is, and what he's like and what he's done? Because there are times when, let's be honest, it's easy to become too familiar with this. It's easy for us to skip over this and not let it really hit our hearts. But as our perfect high priest, Jesus is not only our source of eternal salvation, but he is also our source of daily help. Take a look again at Hebrews. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we, we read this. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a high priest who is out of touch with reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all. All but the sin. He's our perfect high priest. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is ready to give. Take the mercy and accept the help. You see, Jesus wasn't some momentary visitor to planet Earth. This was his home for 33 odd years. Jesus laughed. He cried. He played practical jokes like any other kid. He played with his neighbor's pets and made sandcastles on the beach. He navigated the challenges of teenage life. He managed family squabbles. He learned a trade. He found employment. And he loved a good dinner party. We know that. He got tired. He got frustrated. He, maybe he even raised his voice a little. 
You see, perhaps we've also become too familiar with the idea of God becoming human, that it doesn't capture our hearts as much as what it maybe once did. But I want us to know today how unique this actually is. You see, no other religion dares to say that God would become like us. No other religion dares to say that God would experience what it feels like to be lonely, homeless, misunderstood, broke, hurt, betrayed, rejected or overlooked. No other religion would say that. But this is so significant because it puts God in touch with the ins and outs of our struggles and our pains, your struggles and your pains. But it tells us that God can help us through, that Jesus can help us out the other side again. You see, you and I know this to be true. You and I know that if you go through something significant in your life, the people that are most helpful to you are those who have actually lived it, those who have actually been there before. They're the ones who can actually provide the greatest insight, the greatest level of understanding, and the ones that can help you navigate through that and pop out the other side again, because they've lived it. They've been there. They're the ones who can help out the most. And so let me ask you today, has the complexities and the challenges of life caused you to lose your confidence, though, in drawing near to Jesus? We've been told in this passage that because he's our, our sympathetic saviour, our high priest who understands what we're going through, to approach, other translations say, approach the throne of grace with boldness and with confidence. Maybe you've lost your confidence to approach and draw near to Jesus. Has the enemy been in your ear telling you that Jesus doesn't understand what it is that you're going through? Has the enemy been telling you that if you, just, if you go to him, you're not going to receive mercy and help, you're actually going to receive anger and judgment? If you're hearing those sort of things, it's not God, it's the enemy. And it's all lies. It's lies. Jesus is our source of daily help and he's there to offer help. And he's there to offer mercy for us today. Let us not lose our confidence. Let us go to him. He cares and he can help us through. And as our high priest, and all that is because he's been there. He's experienced it all. He's been through what it is that we are going through so he can help us through it all. You know, here's the thing. I don't think the Magi could have imagined that this child would be that good. I think the Magi, as they're giving this gift, I don't think they had any real comprehension that this child could actually be that good. I think Jesus is more surprising and more wonderful than the Magi could have ever imagined him to be. So in light of all of this, in light of Jesus becoming our high priest, in light of God coming close to us, what, what should our response be? How is it that we should live in light of God coming close to us, in light of Jesus as our high priest? Well, our response should be worship. Our response should be wonder. It should be to be amazed again at who Jesus is and to respond with worship and recognising the great worth of our Saviour. It should be one of seeking him with everything we have, not just going on autopilot. Not seeing him as commonplace or ordinary, but seeing him as the one who is worthy of everything. Glory in the highest. I wonder today, have you become so familiar with Jesus that you've forgotten his immense worth? 
Have you become so familiar with him that you've stopped seeking him like you once did? That you've stopped drawing near to him? That you've stopped coming close to him? If so, let me ask, how is it that this Christmas you will come close to him? How is it this Christmas you will draw near to him? Will you seek after him like the Magi? Will you draw near to him like the Magi? You see, the Magi were truth seekers who recognised the immense worth of this child and they travelled from afar to come close to him. And when they saw him, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. But when they saw him, what did they do? They bowed down and they worshipped him. And they presented him with gifts that were fitting for him. Now, Magi teach us today how it is that we should respond to Jesus. 30-odd years after Jesus was born, he told a little story. He told a, a story about a merchant who spent his life dealing in fine pearls. It says this. This is the story that he told. It'll come up. The kingdom of God is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for excellent pearls. Finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything and buys it. This merchant knew the pearl business and made lots of money. But one day he came across the most excellent pearl he had ever seen. Every other pearl paled into comparison. So he went and sold everything he owned in order to buy that one flawless, most excellent pearl. Because for him, he thought, what's the good of a reasonable pearl collection when you're missing by far the most valuable one? See, the Magi were looking for the precious pearl. And when they felt they'd found it, nothing, not time or distance or weather, could keep them away. The attitude of the Magi is one that must mark all true worshippers this Christmas. Jesus, our great high priest, is a magnificent pearl of great price, who's worth seeking after and abandoning everything for. This Christmas, I pray that you will follow in the way of the Magi and you will come close to Jesus, that you will draw near to him, that you'll come to him seek and seeking him whatever route you can and that you will bring him the best gifts that you can find. Would you stand with me? And I want to pray for us today. And then today, the way I just want to respond to this message, to this news, is to worship. It's to sing songs of praise. It's to celebrate him. You see, we should never become too familiar in our worship of him either. Meeting like this is something special coming together as God's people in times like this to celebrate and praise our God. Let's not take these times for granted. Let's use them as opportunities to be reminded again of the story that we find ourselves in. To be reminded again of the person that we follow, who he is and, and what he is like. So Heavenly Father, as we come now and we, we come to praise you, we come to worship Jesus, 
We welcome the Spirit of God here in this place. And Lord, I want to pray for each of us today that we would be that we would be filled afresh with a new sense of wonder and awe at who you are. That if there are those of us who are here, if we're honest, and we've found ourselves just on autopilot in our relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then Lord, I pray that right now you would arrest that in us and that you would just remind us again of what you've done, of who you are. Ignite that, that flame. And Lord, if maybe we're here and we haven't, we don't even, need, we don't even know you as Lord and Saviour. And Lord, this idea of you as priest, as you as the one who saves us and there's nothing that we can do, we don't have to be perfect, no longer do we have to perform, that that might come now and just warm our hearts. And that we would maybe for the first time even put our trust in you. And so, Spirit of God, we want to welcome you here in this place because you are God with us, Emmanuel. We want to respond with worship and wonder. We want to bring you our best because you are deserving of it all. Let's come and sing. Let's come and worship. Let's celebrate who he is. Thanks for listening and we hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If this message has impacted you in some way, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us through The Hub online at thehub.rbc.org.au or through our social media links in the show notes. See you next time.